Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. To achieve their goal. By midday, when hostilities came to a conclusion, the streets groaned with blooded and injured men. Given the numbers of combatants, probably around 5,000 in total, it's slightly surprising that less than 60 were killed. But of the dead men, there were three of great significance. First was Thomas, Lord Clifford, who had so bravely held the town's defences while the first hour's blows were traded. Second was Henry, Earl of Northumberland, the most senior male in the Percy family, and, as a result, the chief enemy of the Nevilles. And third was the greatest enemy of them all, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. Somerset had fought for the duration of the Battle of St. Albans. Although he may have been an unlucky commander, he was at least used to seeing military action during his long service in France. Several chronicles of the battle record that after the king had been taken to the abbey and as fighting was coming to its conclusion on St. Peter's Street, Somerset was pushed back into defending a tavern under the sign of the castle. At his side was his son, Henry Beaufort, nineteen years old and already a courageous warrior. Whereas the Earl of Wiltshire had timidly, if pragmatically, fled the scene of the battle disguised as a monk, the Beauforts stood their ground and struggled to the very last. Young Henry Beaufort was wounded so severely in the fighting that he left St. Albans, dragged on a cart and close to death. His father wasn't so fortunate. It was he over whom the whole conflict had arisen, and he was a marked man from its outset. Eventually overcome by his enemies, Somerset was dragged from the tavern and hacked to death in the street. With the end of his life arrived the end of the battle. Troops aroused by the bloodshed continued to create havoc in the streets, but this was now an armed rout rather than a purposeful battle. Safe beneath the high vaulted ceilings of the Abbey Church, York, Salisbury and Warwick respectfully took Henry VI before the shrine of St. Alban himself, then requested that they now be received as his faithful subjects and advisers. The king who had absolutely no choice in the matter whatever, accepted that the lords had kept him unhurt and there granted to be ruled by them. As soon as this was done, York gave the order for all violence outside the abbey to cease. His orders were eventually obeyed. But it was only some time later that anyone dared to gather up the bloodied corpses of Somerset and the rest of the men killed on the streets of St. Albans, in a day of violent upheaval that would leave its stain on England for two generations to follow. Henry was escorted back to London by the Yorkists 
on Friday, May the 23rd, and deposited in his apartment in the Palace of Westminster before moving on to the Bishop's Palace. The following day, he was paraded before the City of London in great honour, the said Duke of York riding on his right side and the Earl of Salisbury on the left side and the Earl of Warwick bearing his sword. And on Sunday, May the 25th, in a ceremony at St. Paul's, he sat in state and was handed his crown by the Duke of York. All this presented a picture of majesty and kingly authority, but it was even more spurious than it had ever been. For even if he could be presented to the public in stately highness beside the three lords who had emerged victorious from St. Albans, as a king and not as a prisoner, it was quite obvious that now more than at any time before, Henry VI was a royal cipher. Meanwhile, as York worked to establish for the second time his authority as the chief counsellor of the king and the effective governor of England, stories of the Battle of St. Albans began to spread. They circulated in England and they crossed the Channel. Within days, the fracas was the talk of diplomats across Europe. On May the 31st, 1455, the Milanese ambassador, who had left London earlier in the month, wrote a letter from Bruges to the Archbishop of Ravenna, in which he reported the unpleasant news that in England a great part of the nobles had been in conflict. The Duke of York has done this with his followers, wrote the ambassador, recounting the deaths and injuries that had befallen Somerset and his allies. Yet, if the violence was shocking, there was a seasoned pragmatism in the ambassador's report. York, he wrote, will now take up the government again, and some think that the affairs of the kingdom will now take a turn for the better. If that be the case, we can put up with this inconvenience. Three days later, the ambassador filed an update confirming his earlier notes. Peace reigns, he wrote. The Duke of York has the government, and the people are very pleased at this. Even if this was true, it wouldn't last for long. Part 3 The Hollow Crown 1455-1471 a quote from Sforza dei Bettini of Florence, Milanese ambassador to the court of Louis XI. I spoke quietly to His Majesty about English affairs. He remarked with a sigh that it is impossible to fight against fortune. Chapter 10 Princess Most Excellent in 1456, Coventry was one of the richest and most densely populated cities in England. Beyond London, only Bristol and Norwich could claim to be bigger or more prosperous. Coventry's busy cloth market was the beating heart of a proud and bustling community, living both within and beyond the recently renovated city walls, surrounded by a ditch and accessed on three sides by ornate ancient gates. 
The river Sherbur wound its way by the southern wall, and three of England's busiest roads passed within twenty miles of the city. Coventry boasted all the features of a thriving urban centre, elegant churches and a grammar school, inns for revellers and travellers under the signs of the swan and the bear, a magnificent guild hall built on the remains of a castle ruined nearly three hundred years earlier, two hospitals and a hermitage, townhouses belonging to local dignitaries and merchants, and four religious houses, one of which was the cloistered college of the vicar's choral, whose voices marked the liturgical rhythm of the day. In the southeast of the city proper was a rare expanse of open space, the vineyard which had once belonged to the castle. Densely populated suburbs spread out from the walls, houses dotted between pockets of marshland, regularly flooded by the region's several waterways. This was a vibrant center of trade and power, well connected to the realm beyond. It was a place fit for a king, and, more important, for a queen. On September the 14th, 1456, Margaret of Anjou entered Coventry in high splendor. She came with her young son, Prince Edward, who was a month short of his third birthday. Henry the Sixth, husband, father, and still, in his deeply unremarkable way, King of England, had come to the city several days before the rest of his family. He wasn't an impressive sight. Sickness had left him feebler than ever, still blandly pious and easily swayed by whoever had command of him. He was now also physically weak and quick to tire. Henry was only thirty-four years old, but more than a decade of criticism and disappointment had left him miserably reduced. He had begun planning his tomb in Westminster Abbey, and at times acted as though he were ready to crawl into it. Pope Pius II, watching England from afar, would later describe Henry in this phase of his life as a man more timorous than a woman, utterly devoid of wit or spirit, who left everything in his wife's hands. It was therefore Margaret's arrival into Coventry, and not Henry's, that was marked with the greatest pageantry and display. The city was famous for its mystery plays, and the citizens put all of their dramatic expertise into celebrating the arrival of a woman who, since the serious decline in her husband's health, was becoming one of the most formidable political actors in England. As she processed into the town, she was greeted in verse, albeit somewhat pedestrian in its composition, by figures arrayed as Isaiah and Jeremiah, St. Edward, St. John, and Alexander the Great, and players dressed as the seven cardinal virtues and the nine worthies. She was hailed as a princess most excellent, born of blood royal, and empress, queen, princess excellent, in one person all three. The actor playing Joshua, king of the Israelites, called her the highest lady that I can imagine. Her son, Edward, was accorded similar high praise. St. Edward the Confessor called his young namesake my ghostly child, whom I love principally. 
while St. John gave thanks that the virtuous voice of Prince Edward shall daily well increase. The figure of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest soldier kings in history, offered Henry the unlikely title of noblest prince that is born, whom fortune hath famed, sovereign Lord Harry, emperor and king. This was very much a token gesture among a pageant that celebrated the Queen's majesty above all. It drew to an end with the sight of St. Margaret taking to the stage to slay a dragon with a miracle. Evidently satisfied with what she had seen, Margaret would remain in Coventry with the king, prince, and royal court for much of the next year, and return frequently for the rest of the decade. Although England's bureaucratic machinery remained in Westminster, the realm would henceforth be ruled effectively from the Midlands. Since the Battle of St. Albans, Margaret's power had increased steadily. At twenty-six, she was now a mature and experienced public figure, confident, capable, and connected to a large circle of supporters and allies. Most important, she had possession of Edward, the heir to the crown, and it was through her own queenly influence and her importance as keeper of the little prince that she set about establishing herself as an alternative hub of power to Richard, Duke of York. Women weren't often able to exercise outright political control in the 15th century. Contemporary political thought held them to be weak, hysterical, and physically incapable of carrying out the fundamental duties of kingship, not least riding into battle, swinging an axe, ready to make war upon their enemies, Female rule was considered unnatural, and attempts by women to seize power unilaterally were rare and usually futile. But that was not how Margaret saw it. Growing up in Anjou, she had witnessed her mother and grandmother taking charge of her father's territories during his long periods of imprisonment, ruling in the name of a man and wielding his authority, but in reality acting on their own. Why should she not do the same in England, either through her husband or her son? York's policy following his victory at St. Albans had been to establish a second protectorate, similar to that which had existed during the king's illness. He secured reappointment as protector on November the 15th, 1455, and for four months did his best to exercise royal authority in the cause of unity among the lords and good governance. But whereas during York's first protectorate the king had been obviously and totally incapacitated, during the second protectorate York was attempting to exercise royal power without any such urgent mandate. He was obliged to reward his Neville allies handsomely for their help in ridding the realm of Somerset. Richard, Earl of Warwick, was awarded the captaincy of Calais, and a slew of grants in Wales, where Somerset had held land and titles. The Boucher family was also well rewarded, but few other families benefited, which gave the impression that the Second Protectorate was a narrow clique rather than the national enterprise York seemed genuinely to have imagined he could create. Politics had become far more strained and factious in the aftermath of the violence York had provoked, 
and although he enjoyed a few successes, restoring order to the southwest by stamping out the worst excesses committed between the Courtney and Bonville families, this wasn't enough to convince the realm that Yorkist government in Henry VI's name was the solution to its problems. York ran into severe difficulty in early 1456, when Parliament demanded another full-blooded act of resumption, by which lands granted away from the crown would be swept back into royal possession in order to bolster the king's finances. Since York had a mandate to try to bring some order and stability to royal government, he stood behind the policy and did his best to try to persuade his fellow lords to do the same. But here again, he found that the base of his support was extremely narrow. There was a distinct apathy toward his protectorate, and certainly he didn't possess enough enthusiastic support throughout the realm to encourage men who had been personally enriched by grants from the crown suddenly to give them up with no prospect of recompense. The act was rejected by a large number of England's lords, and York felt he had no choice but to resign the protectorship on February the 25th, 1456. He tried to remain involved in government throughout the summer, organizing military defenses when the King of Scots raided the northern border, and trying to deal with pockets of disorder in Wales. But his authority was almost visibly ebbing away. In public, he was scorned. A display of five severed dogs' heads was erected on Fleet Street in London in September, with each dog's dead mouth bearing a satirical poem against York, that man that all men hate. By the autumn, it was clear that his rule was over. His allies and supporters began to be dismissed from their offices and were replaced by men loyal to Queen Margaret. From late 1456, then, the Queen tried to impose herself on the affairs of state. A correspondent, watching events in London during the end of York's second protectorate, wrote to the East Anglian knight Sir John Fastoff that the Queen is a great and strong laboured, that is, much petitioned, woman, for she spareth no pain to sue her things to an intent and conclusion to her power. A chronicler writing later went further, noting that the governance of the realm stood most by the Queen and her council. And a third writer, a partisan of York, reckoned that the Queen ruled the realm as her light, gathering riches innumerable. It was rumoured that she was attempting to persuade her husband to abdicate resigning the crown to his young son, who would become, by implication, a puppet strung even more tightly to her fingers. In part, Margaret's motivation in opposing York was sheer personal enmity. The Queen had been deeply offended by the Duke's actions in 1455. Whatever the constitutional niceties of York's argument, Margaret couldn't ignore the fact that the Duke had raised an army left two peers, one of them her friend Somerset, bleeding to death in the streets of St. Albans, and taken the king as an effective captive back to London. York, for his part, resented the queen's moving toward the centre of power. A woman, and a French woman at that, 
supplanting the natural role of a duke of the royal blood, was completely unacceptable. Added to this was the fact that this particular woman appeared to hate him with every fibre of her being, and was committed to undermining his attempts at government. It was no surprise that relations between the two camps were strained. During 1457, Margaret built up her territorial power in the Midlands, staffed her son's council with loyal household men, and where she could, advanced trusted allies both through offices and other means such as marriages. Thus, in April 1427, Henry's half-brother Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, was appointed as constable of Carmarthen and Aberystwyth, Welsh offices that had recently been in the hands of York himself. Meanwhile, Jasper's elder brother, Edmund Tudor, Earl of Richmond, was a focus for the Queen's interest in South Wales, where he busied himself with a private war against two of the Duke of York's retainers, Sir William Herbert and Sir Walter Devereux. Edmund Tudor, had been granted a handsome elevation through his marriage in the autumn of 1455 to Margaret Beaufort, the twelve-year-old niece of the late Duke of Somerset and daughter of the disgraced soldier John Beaufort, the Duke who had died possibly by suicide when Margaret was one year old. Margaret was the richest heiress in England, and her hand brought with it immense wealth and power. By the summer of 1456, Margaret was pregnant, but Edmund Tudor would never see his child. He died of plague on November the 1st, 1456, following a short imprisonment by York's retainers in Carmarthen Castle in Wales. Just under three months later, on January the 28th, 1457, in Pembroke Castle, the thirteen-year-old Margaret Beaufort was traumatically delivered of a son named Henry Tudor. Even in an age when girls became wives and mothers... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.